far we're going. Oh my gosh, um, you're watching a show? I'm doing my homework. That's what <laughs> yeah, I call right. It. That's right. <laughs> when I turn it on, well, I tell my husband, I'm doing my homework for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I say um, when I'm on TikTok all the time. Um, right. <laughs> just like Twitter so, helps me with all my academic pursuits. <laughs> it does. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. What do you guys think of my new cadence for the intro? Pro, yay, nay? I feel like it shifted mine when I said my <laughs> name. I feel like I, <laughs> I totally heard mine and didn't like it, didn't like it. <laughs> Today, Sassan will bring us an exciting discussion about dating shows. Uh, then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Pure Network Processes in Adolescence healthy lifestyles. Interesting. And then in good or bad advice, we'll talk about a tweet thread where people explicitly talk about good mental health advice that they've received. Remember last uh, episode, we talked about bad mental advice uh, people had received. So we're doing the uh, sister to that. And we'll try to break down why the advice might be good, of course, using science and research. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, I'm sure that there are many others. I use uh, Podcast Addict. Um, go rate, review, subscribe to it, all of those fun things. But before we get to all of that... What have you guys been up to? How's it going? Well, I have been watching the Olympics over the last few weeks. Ba, 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 so it is wrapping ba, ba, up. Ba, 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 oh, that was beautiful. I was trying to do an undertone for you. Did it oh, yeah, work? Yeah, I liked it. Sorry. Oh, no, yeah, it was beautiful. Um, yeah, it's been uh, an interesting Olympics. Um, mm. I love having the ability to just turn the TV on and even just sometimes have it in the background. Yes. And you know, you don't have to sort of um, be fully committed to whatever sport you're watching. Right. There are so many invented sports that I have never... You see them only <laughs> in the Olympics. I only yeah. see them in the Olympics. Um, and also, like, the drama around... I love watching figure skating. I love so much the commentators. Like, I look forward every Olympics to uh, Tara and Johnny. And also, this year, I felt like was so disturbing with oh my this gosh. Um, women's single figure skating competition that um, while it has been what I have been up to lately, I feel like it brought me less joy. It just felt so disturbing, <gasps> you know? Yeah. Um, it was uh, really very horrific circumstances around these poor Russian skaters. Um, so anyways. yeah, I haven't heard anything about it. Can you break it down just a little bit? I don't think I've heard much. I know that 
all I saw was images of the person who had the gold medal was sitting alone, but I don't really know. Oh yeah, that was really and sad there was a, also. a doping so scandal. I know, yeah, so there's weak. a doping scandal. So there's already a, like a, a prior doping scandal, meaning that any Russian athlete is not uh, competing under the Russian flag. They are competing under the Russian Olympic Committee, which is mm. not specifically the country okay. uh, and the country's flag. It feels sort of like a slight nominal shift. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it still feels like the same circumstance, but regardless, the figure skaters, um, especially for women are extremely young. Uh, and so they're like 14 and 15. Oh they're my children. gosh. Yes. Um, and so what had come up this time was that there was their star athlete who is magnificent. Her skate in the team event was just unbelievable. She was the first woman to land quads in competition in the Olympics and um, just unbelievable 15 year old. And then it came to light that she had tested positive for a banned substance in December around a different competition and um, had been allowed to compete. And then when that came to light, because I think that information was withheld from the Olympic committee, um, then they had to decide what to do with that information. They decided to allow her to compete regardless. Um, And so there's been a lot of discussion around how they handle um, and promote clean sport and clean competition. But in my opinion, not enough discussion around the fact that this is a 15-year-old girl in the U.S. that would constitute child abuse. Oh, yeah. To be giving a child, um, because in this case it was um, heart medications that are known to improve athletic performance Um, and uh, just some of the oh my gosh context around how they train these young Russian girls. They're girls, is what they yeah. are. Uh, children to be doing this professional level competition and what they put these girls' bodies through while they're developing is um, really disturbing. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure very long term consequences. Yeah, they can't develop. Their bodies can't develop as normal uh, because they are putting so much pressure on them. Uh, let alone yeah. mental pressure. So. Mm. Yeah. It's hard, especially because it's such a it, juxtaposition of such a beautiful sport uh, juxtaposed yeah. to the really, really dark underbelly of what's going right. on there. I mean, I think what's so magnificent about the Olympics is you're seeing people achieve what the average human cannot right. through incredible work and persistence and talent and it's insane process to be able to make it to the Olympics. They're pushing sort of the boundary of what the human body is capable of. But if you're pushing that boundary through banned substances, it's not really the same at all. No, yeah. And also when you're doing that to children, it's just especially gross. Yeah. Yeah. Something that this has brought to light to me though, is just, I know that the Russians are getting a lot of spotlight on this, but I don't know that this is a new issue for us as a, I agree. Yeah. You know, a larger community um, who know that to make it to the Olympics, you have to really sacrifice and you have to sacrifice young, you know? So whether you're in Russia or somewhere else, including the United States, I know that a lot of youth are put through incredible pressure and Mm -hmm. have to participate in activities day in and day out, sacrifice school, you know, just childhood to be able to perform at this level. So I think there's a larger conversation to be had about absolutely you know, what it is that we're putting you through mentally as well, right? The physical aspect is scary and dangerous, 
But I also think the mental health piece um, is something we have to look at, uh, you know, as a larger international community and just how much we are willing to have these folks experience this at the cost of us enjoying these events every, you know, some odd years. And I get that there's a lot of joy and national pride yeah. for countries to be able to send, um, you know, their champions to this level of competition on an international front. But if you, I think we were to hear the stories of the people who eventually got there and what it took and what the sacrifice was mm -hmm. and the mental health things that come with that. I just wonder sometimes, like, yeah. it, does it feel like there's another way to do this? Do we change like the age requirements? I'm seeing four and five year olds have to do stuff with their body and like little tumbling and gymnastic classes just to like compete, right? It's just, yeah. it feels like there's just such a focus on competition at a really early age, earlier and earlier so that you could eventually get to this level. And my question is like, is it really to the benefit of these Olympians to be able to do this? I don't yeah. know. I know there's a lot of mental health issues among Olympians mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it gets you know, discovered once they leave, right? Mm -hmm. the, right. the sport. Long-term consequences. Yeah, the consequences of you know talking about and admitting to some of this while performing is also you know too much of a risk for them. Yeah, I've heard a lot of conversation about making 18 a requirement for competing. I think that that probably is a good idea. I don't know if that will happen. But going back to what Sarah was saying and you too, Sesson, about just the unbelievable spectacle and achievement that these people are competing. I read a tweet, maybe Sarah sent it to me. I don't remember where I saw it, but someone saying, I'm advocating once again that before each Olympian, uh, the game, that specific sports start, a normal person attempts it just so we can really <laughs> so amazing. see yeah. what it yeah. is. Because yeah. it is so true that you see these people yeah. doing these quads and they make it look yeah. so easy. Right, right, right. Uh, I need to go on the ice rink and just like try sure. and do try a, to skate. A jump. Try to skate, yeah, stand. <laughs> and then a jump and be like, <laughs> right. All right, really, now we're watching bring on the Olympians. We're watching the luge. And I think it was my husband that was like, laying on a sled and like going down a hit, like what it and then one of them flips he's like oh holy <laughs> <laughs> like never mind it's not like regular people can't do it oh my no, god no, so they there is one sport i would have to argue that i might have a chance curling i saw for the first time <laughs> it blew my mind i've heard yeah. of this curling thing you know i like, don't think that anybody can actually do that. It looks so hard. You have to just like balance and like scrub and like have it's perfect human-sized shuffleboard. It's amazing. I swear, to, uh, Carlos said, I feel like these are a bunch of stay-at-home dads who are coming together. To like, <laughs> like this is what the US it. team looks like, right? And it's uh, like, I think it's wonderful. It gives you the sense that, hey, I too can be an Olympic, you can even do though this. I am very there's sure no that there's a lot of, yeah, of course, no way. I think, I think that probably, that yeah, exactly. It. That one in particular, normal people need to go out and try and do it. And try yeah, exactly. all over the ice <laughs> and show it. Oh, mercy oh, ups yeah. and downs, but I certainly okay. have been enjoying, uh, the Olympics watching what I am able to watch. My oldest has been really obsessed with hockey. Like she's like, I want to watch hockey. And I was like, okay. Cool. Never have talked about it in our household. Sure. Um, but there we go. Uh, but anyway, Sesson, what have you been up to? Tell us stories. Tell us fun stories. Tell us the adventures of your life. I was Am I say, setting up? Because mine much? was dark. <laughs> mine was, was very say, dark. Now you Could change you? the like <gasps> the criteria change to fun. I'm like, wait, that's not what. <laughs> Are you assigning me to go have fun now? Because I can do that. I can try. Do um, 
So, you know, I don't know if this is more just of a consistent presence that this week felt very much at the surface of everything I was doing Mm -hmm. is just this focus on trying to sign my child up for sports um, and trying to sign uh, him up for sports that I feel will sort of help shape his future. Speaking of like Olympic athletes, (laughs) like not starting them. Are you trying to get him to be an Olympian? I am not actually. He tumbles around in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I have... Um, you know, decided like, he's a very, very strong one child. So if he doesn't like something, you know, we just can't do it. Like that's, you know, we can force him in the car a couple of times and get him there and then he'll, he'll participate, but it's not worth it for any of us in the family to go through that. So it's trying to find activities that he will enjoy that we feel like are in terms of where he is developmentally or or proper fit. It's just tricky for us because like we tried baseball and that was too intense. Mm. Um, you know, we've tried a couple different soccer leaves and sometimes it's just a hot mess out there with like the kids and there's no sense of like, there's no soccer being played. So that's at the point where I'm like, I want it to look like the sport that we signed up for. He's five though. He is five. And this is, I don't know if it'll look like this. My husband is like, he's five. And I'm like, yes, he is. But He's capable developmentally of certain things. And I just want him to lean into things that will help him grow a little bit. We tried tennis. No, we haven't tried tennis. It feels like a little early for tennis, but you know, I have decided maybe the competitive sports are not where I want him maybe to start, but like more of like some arts activities and, you know, going and doing like tumbling entirely. Yes. I'm not finding myself successful in the uh, competitive sports because he has to come home and do a little bit of practice. And I'm like, I don't know the basics of this game. So I don't know yeah. that I can be very helpful to you. And um, so we're making some decisions and I'm definitely finding that balance between he's five. He'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, he'll tell us what he wants to do at some point and us, you know, sort of leading that charge. So that's taken a whole bunch of energy. And this was hard. Like, whoa, you're turning into a crazy person over this. <laughs> it's very, very challenging. We thus far have avoided team sports uh, because they mm. are a higher commitment. Oh, but I are. think it probably will happen at some point. My middle child wants to do soccer. So we're uh, working on what that looks like i'm also exploring more individual sports like tennis mm-hmm. fencing was something i thought about like oh because it's <laughs> I mean, why not right like it could be I, like it's an individual sport know. like yeah, rock sure. climbing like things that they can go to a class and like if they want to go to a competition it's like once a term or something like that but it's not like weekly games or something like that, but it's still physical. They're learning techniques and skills. We haven't done any of that, but like, that's where my brain, my husband uh, used to teach tennis. So he is teaching the kids tennis right now. So that's fun. Um, But anyway, it's hard. It's a hard decision to make for sure. Um, And I haven't obviously no idea uh, what we're going to do. Okay. So you guys remember A while back, I was so excited over Christmas break because I read an actual book. Sesson, I don't think, love hypothesis. Um, Let me catch you up, Sesson. It is basically a rom-com in a book. I was so proud of myself because it wasn't audible. I actually read it. 
so exciting. I love the book. I recommended it to my friend Melissa. She read it and texted me the other day. She was like, oh my goodness, Adam and Olive. And I was like, yes. Those are the characters' names. They're now our best friends. Um, we spent an entire morning texting back and forth, casting it for <laughs> a movie. Um, so anyway. I feel like it. I'm going back in time to when you were... <laughs> became newly obsessed with what was that series? Oh my I don't gosh! Even want to say it okay, we will exactly say it. What you're talking about. Justin and like, I lived together when Twilight came out. So, like, <laughs> I was reading the books, and Justin was like, "How are you like literally reading these books?" I'm like, "Because I am." Um, yeah, so I definitely like get easily hooked into something and like consume all of it. Like I don't yes. like casually like things like that doesn't happen. Like I either like it and I'm doing it. I also do the same thing with hobbies. Like, oh, hobbies. I definitely feel like this is a making, pattern, but I'm glad you said it first. Yeah. <laughs> Cheese making deep dive into it. Learn all of the things. Do it sign up for like a, a raw milk delivery like i'm in it uh yarn spinning buy a spinning wheel learn how, like i don't like casually do a whole lot of things um i love it it brings me a whole lot of joy but i do know it does i'm sure from an outside perspective feel schizophrenic but anyway or chaotic whatever it doesn't matter um the point was that i was so excited about love hypothesis i Amazon recommended two more books that I would like. I bought those two books. I haven't read them because I haven't had time to read them. But you possess them. But I possess them. These came in the mail probably like three months ago. I forgot also that I pre-ordered until this week. Oh, what did you pre-order? Two more books. (laughs) So they came in the mail and my husband was like, these the soulmate yeah, equation the soulmate equation wow look and at that book the spanish love deception <laughs> wow. i pre-ordered wow. those they just came in the mail and i also it happened one summer and the hating game these all sound very romantic <laughs> i i now impressed have a bunch of books that I have to read. I've read the first page of one of them, you guys. Um, I have to read them because I bought them paperback. It's not like I bought them in audiobook where I can just listen to them. Um, so now I have to find time, but I, I'm pretty sure I didn't pre-order anymore. I need to go look at Amazon to make sure I didn't like <laughs> <Order box. laughs> go buck wild, um, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. That's fun though. You're back to, you know, reading a book. Well, opening she's back pages. To- Owning books. Yeah. I did the one. Yeah, that's true. I did the one over Christmas break because I like cut out everything for two solid weeks. Didn't really check email, nothing. It was just family and Christmas, and that's all I did. And also love hypothesis. Um, but it's a great book. I highly recommend it. It is just pure like brain candy easy to consume, just like so many rom-com tropes, but like in a fun way, alas. (sighs) 
First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop cultures or books. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasson, what you got for us? So this week, I thought we'd talk about a little-known um, subject matter that I think brings great debate um, among many of us. Ooh. But I'll talk about the show that had me start to really question things, but I'll do that at another time. Today, I just really <laughs> want to talk about our society's fascination with dating shows mm. and the fears that I'm growing to have about just how much the media and TV are shaping our understanding of dating. Mm. Um, I really, up until now, just sort of dismissed, you know, shows that I've seen come through as, you know, oh, entertaining, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But the more I see is out there, the more I wonder like what this might mean for us as a culture, um, given how many folks turn to TV and the media um, mm. for information, right? Um, sure. About how to show up in their own lives. So the act of dating and partnering, as we know, is an essential part of the human experience. So, you know, it sets the trajectory for the rest of our adult lives. So I have to wonder, you know, do we have more of a ethical moral obligation to be promoting material out there that we know is influential um, in a way that is more consistent with the realities of real dating and real partnering and more consistent and more grounded in science? Um, so I want to focus a little bit on that today, you know, in engaging in unhealthy dating practices, which a lot of these shows, I believe, do promote. Um, I think in real life promotes, you know, increased risk for things like IPV sliding into marriage, you know, and then eventually with IPV means, being intimate partner in, violence. Yeah. Intimate partner violence, exposing children, you know, to unstable households, even domestic violence if they start out on a particular trajectory in their dating relationships, right? Um, that could have like long-term implications on families. So again, I just think the stakes are high and yet we are, um, I think commercializing dating and profiting from these the media and TV and the way they are just churning out these dating shows, taking certain premises, certain theories, and trying to interpret them in very interesting and new and very much uh, trying to use like a consumer model to like promote ideas. And I think I'm concerned, <laughs> I guess, oh, is yeah. the bottom line here. I'm, I'm starting to be really concerned because I think about just how much is out there um, compared to where I think, you know, things originally started. And I think it was as early back as like the early like the very late 1990s. 90s. Like I'm or, thinking yeah. of the dating show. What was it called? The dating show where like they would go sit on a couch and like they had three videos of different people that they could go on a date with. Right. Yeah. I, um, way back when. I remember that one. Right. Far yes, less I volatile. Remember, yeah. Yes, it was. And that to me felt relatively innocent, right? There weren't these theories that they were trying to plug into the show and like, frame the show around and then sort of taking it off the rails from there. Um, I think it was called The Dating Show, if I'm not mistaken. But um, we're yeah. far past that now. And yeah. um, next week, I'll talk about one show that I have intentionally decided to plug into to just see how far we're going. Oh, my gosh. Um, you're watching a show? I'm doing my homework. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> when I turn it on, well, I tell my husband, I'm doing my homework for the week. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's what I say uh, when I'm on TikTok all the time. Um, right. <laughs> just like Twitter so, helps me with all my academic pursuits. <laughs> it does. Oh, uh, yes. Being well-rounded is important. So I guess my question to the both of you is, uh, do we have a responsibility to future generations to be promoting mm. real science-based relationship education, right? And how we do that in an entertaining way, that I don't know. But I think the idea that we need to be um, moving away from promoting rhetoric and fairy tales about dating and partnering that exists in the media and TV, I think is important. Um, so do you all feel that it's gone too far or is it me just sort of being the dramatic person I sometimes can be? <laughs> no, that's um, definitely yeah, not that's it. Not what I do. No. <laughs> um, yeah, that's my first question to you all. I think it's an interesting question. I honestly have never watched any of these, so I don't really have a basis, but from like a historical perspective, like I'm thinking about, we've told stories about relationships forever, right? Thinking in the beginning, way back when, like Jane Austen stories. And I wonder if they were having these conversations around her stories back then. I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm not a historian. Um, I agree that trying to pair it with education or some sort of like, this is what a long lasting relationship looks like would be um, amazing. But I agree. I don't know how they would go about doing it. So is the concern valid? I think there is some validity there, but I also wonder historically, has this conversation um, happened before? Woods? Yeah, well, and I was also sort of wondering um, what the evidence is for like consumption of these media narratives and Ooh. their impact on mm-hmm. um, actual behavior. Because I don't know that either actually and now that you say it I feel like I should know um but I don't and the only research that I think might be near ish that is video games and violence I think that that was a narrative for a while but research kind of debunked that to a certain extent um so I don't know uh like video games promoting uh in-person violence but it might be different because it's teaching how to interact with loved ones. It might be a different tool that uh, Mm. media is teaching. Um, And obviously our uh, baseline assumption for this podcast is that media depiction of relationships is important. Um, And also it may be in the absence of um, other kinds of narratives uh, or other healthy narratives, it could certainly promote ideals about relationships that become problematic. So um, exploring Mm. those sort of consumption behaviors in the context of other ways that we learn about relationships from our families and our friends and schools. And um, do we do very much intentional teaching in general about how to have healthy relationships? I think research would say we do not. (laughs) I would agree to that. I think a lot of what we think we know about dating, right? What we hold to think is true, it comes from observation, right? Or um, our own like lived experiences, but are we intentionally seeking out material information, um, you know, through some form of relationship education? I don't know that we do that as individuals, but I don't know systemically that those things are also promoted um, despite what we know can be the benefits of that. And I think 
in this particular moment where, um, you know, a lot of people watching, consuming media and TV are feeling more and more isolated, um, like mm-hmm. in the quarantine, right? Where we have very limited exposure, right? This observation that I was mentioning, like, I don't know that we're getting a lot of that. I don't know that people are necessarily reading, throw, scrolling through journal articles, looking for that information. But what they are doing is they are watching a lot of TV. I think they're consuming a lot. And I wonder if people are even more vulnerable in this moment right now to mm-hmm. try to look at these images, these relationships and say, maybe there's some truth there. I don't know if it's consciously unconscious, but I do wonder just to what extent that influence is there. Mm-hmm. So to your point, um, Sarah, I think some research to determine what that influence looks like, right? If it's there at all is I think a good idea. Cause I think we do have to think in more in moderation if there is some harmful effects that we at this point may not officially scientifically can't say are there, but unofficially, I do think I have some questions there because there's millions of viewers, millions of people mm-hmm. who are taking their cues from TV. And yeah. Media. And it would be interesting to see if they do see it just as entertainment. Like, is it the same to them mm-hmm, as sure. watching the latest JLo rom-com that came out a bit ago? Like, how are they consuming it? Do they really expect these people to like live? Like, do they think it's reality? Because I would hope that they don't, even though it's called a reality show. Are they consuming it with the same assumptions of like maybe a rom-com or watching a uh, Pride and Prejudice or something like that? Is it that same level of It would be interesting to see how people are consuming it and then what that looks like about how they're reflecting it in their own life. There probably is some science on this. I just don't know it. Yeah. Um, And so now I feel like now I have homework and it'll be less fun than the TV (laughs) watching (laughs) guy. next week's episode (laughs) no it's true but I also see to that you know statement about like is it the same as the way they make sense and interpret rom-com these are real people in these shows right these are people who are coming from all across or particularly the the shows that are based in the U.S. like all across the U.S. right and they're from various different backgrounds um, at least not racial backgrounds as much but (laughs) other backgrounds Mm. So I do wonder if people sort of see themselves and other people in these experiences and say like, oh, you know, I have the same fears and concerns as this person. I come from the same community as this person. And if they are really, if there's just a different level of connection that they have to the idea that this too could be them. And the way these shows I intentionally try to pull in science as a way to like um, set the premise for the show. Do they really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. They do. They even include some attachment literature and then they start the show with, you know, science says this. And then that's why we created the show. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, Should we be contacting the authors and see if they support this idea? (laughs) Also, maybe they should just hire us. Consultants. (laughs) Cash money. Bachelor in Paradise, call me. I'm... (laughs) (laughs) I will spend some time in paradise. (laughs) Some food for thought, and I look forward to uh, next week's episode. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Peer Network Processes in Adolescents' Health Lifestyles, recently published in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, written by Jimmy Adams, Joshua Good, and Dr. Stephanie Mulburn at 
University of Colorado, Dr. Elizabeth Lawrence at UNLV. Um, that's Las Vegas, baby. And Dr. David Schaefer at UC Irvine. These authors explore whether adolescent friends are similar in their health behaviors. Specifically, they test whether adolescents' friends influence one another's health behaviors or whether adolescents choose the friends they have because they have similar health lifestyles. The authors define health lifestyles as clusters of health behaviors that co-occur in like patterned ways. Such as people who exercise may be more likely to eat healthy or people who abuse substances may be more likely to engage in risky uh, sexual activity. Sometimes, though, our health behaviors may not cluster in terms of healthy and unhealthy, uh, but may be a mix of both. The authors point out, for example, that previous research has found that a large group of adolescents in the U.S. who engage in the most ideal amounts of exercise and healthy eating also engage in the highest rates of binge drinking. Our health uh, lifestyles also fluctuate over time and adolescents are especially likely to start new health behaviors and start to make choices for themselves about how they take care of their health. Therefore, our health lifestyles may not be driven solely by our individual commitments to our health. Instead, they are driven by many different social factors, including how our family takes care of their health, uh, socioeconomic status, education, school or workplace norms, but also their peers. Full disclosure, a lot of the work Sarah and I do focus on these kind of concepts, but in adulthood. So I'm like super stoked about this and what it looks like in adolescence. Um, super stoked, something that all cool people say. <laughs> I'm hip to the adolescence tea. The authors highlight that peer effects on our health behaviors are interesting because we choose our friends. We don't tend to, especially in adolescents, choose our family and are influenced by them. And our friends and our friend group identity may impact how we choose to take care of our health and influence how our health behaviors change over time. This is especially important to explore for adolescents whose health behaviors may be reinforced by their friends in school environments. They adopt the behaviors of their friends, have a need to belong, and also are more likely to become friends with kids who are already similar to them. Sarah, these authors explore health lifestyles within schools and between peers and friends, but tease out whether adolescents pick friends who behave like them or begin to behave more like their friends sounds really challenging, like statistically and research-wise, how to tease out. Mm -hmm. Please, my lovely peer and friend, um, and I only say those in an English accent, uh, sure, tell us you. more <laughs> about how they did this. And full disclosure, I have a new statistical analysis that I just learned and I'm applying to everything. So I might try to sneak in my new fancy knowledge. In this. Sure. Oh, I'm excited. You're right that I think the method and how they did this statistically is the most interesting part. Mm -hmm. uh, the research question obviously is, I think, really, really interesting. Um, and hopefully our listeners will agree. Um, but you're right that statistically how they looked at this is incredibly cool. Um, so they use the ad health data set, which in the research world on adolescence is 
um, probably the most famous national yeah. data set. It's longitudinal, so it's got many, many different waves. It started in the mid-90s, and it follows cohorts of adolescents over time to be able to track adolescent health as it evolves into adult health. So it's really, really famous. Um, uh, very large data set, many, many different participants. Also, this would be a hard research question to ask. With an average collection of adolescents yeah. from your local middle or high school, this requires large <laughs> level data set. I, well, you never know. Listeners may uh, want to go into their local middle or high school. I have some questions class. for the kids. Um, and it's also hard because school systems, rightfully so, don't oftentimes let research researchers in to ask right. such questions. So right. some of this information that Ad Health can provide is really, really yeah. challenging to um, access for most scholars. In your local middle school, it's not in your really local. possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what these researchers captured were two in-home interview surveys that occurred approximately one year apart from the data set's two largest, most saturated high schools. So where they have um, a lot of data coming out of these two specific high schools. Uh, one was a mostly white Midwestern high school, and the other was uh, a larger and uh, ethnically diverse high school in the Western coast side of uh, the US. And so they specifically looked at 10 different health behaviors occurring among adolescents uh, in these schools. So they looked at substance abuse, including smoking, drinking, chewing tobacco, drug use. Uh, they also looked at activity level, which is two different ways they looked at this. Yes. Oh, I was just thinking, what year was this? Because I didn't know chewing tobacco was a normative thing that teenagers do, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, I'm right. I mean, I'm wrong. I think it's probably culturally dependent a okay. bit, right? Okay, yeah, so fair, it's probably fair. got regional flavors and cultural. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, well, Mint? Yeah, I don't think the tobacco <laughs> itself has regional flavors. <laughs> uh, it could, I guess I the don't proportion. know. proportion. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> but, um, but extremely disturbing. I remember learning about it in high school, in health class, and having to look at pictures about what chewing tobacco did. That was my experience with chewing tobacco being oh, so my disturbing. My experience with chewing tobacco was all my uh, 4-H friends, not all of them, a number of them dipping and having a spit can. And then just thinking about all of the spit in that one can uh, still makes me want to vomit. Uh, <laughs> right. So in that group context, there was a group identity about chewing tobacco use. That's exactly what these people looked at. Did yeah. your 4-H friends seek each other out because of your 4-H mutual interests? And then did that 4-H mutual interest drive their <gasps> chewing tobacco use? And Absolutely not. 4-H eventually... is amazing. How dare you? But I see it. Point taken. <laughs> Were you going to be driven out of the friend group had you continued in 4-H because you did not chew tobacco? I know. I don't know. So they looked at frequency of engaging in physical activity, so um, softball, using a bicycle, exercise stuff, right? As well as hours per week spent watching TV, doing video games, so that sedentary piece, sexual activity, seatbelt use, dentist and doctor checkups in the last year, and getting enough sleep. Um, and what they did was they estimated health lifestyles using latent class analysis. So um, what they were looking for were classes of how these health behaviors were interrelated. Um, and uh, they looked at this across all adolescents with available responses to these surveys within each school, and they did it for each year. So once oh. they determined 
um, those classes. So then they could look at whether their class membership changed, right? So at baseline, if you're right. more likely to be participating in this cluster of health behaviors, does that change a year later? Right. So like you're in the super healthy cluster because yep. all yes. you don't do any of the chewing tobacco, you exercise, you wear your seatbelt, whatever those classes are. And then the next year you are in the chewing tobacco group. And so you changed. And so yes, then what right. they're looking at is... My understanding is, does your peer group influence that change or are you change and then your friends change? I didn't say yes. that well, but you continue because. Okay. The- um, so once they determine those classes of those correlated health behaviors, then they assign individual students to those classes. So just uh-huh. like Patricia just said, at the first year, I'm most likely to be part of this class. Uh, this group of related health behaviors and um, I could be in a different class second year or the same year. Um, Right. And we don't assign them and say like, oh, you have to chew tobacco. What we're saying is assignment uh, statistically. Like what is the statistical likelihood that you're part of that group? And then we, uh, when we say that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, And also classes being a statistical term too, not necessarily like a high school class. Oh, that's a good, (laughs) very, very different. Um, But second, what they did was they modeled what they called network dynamics, which is so exciting. So they used participants' health lifestyles that they determined in that first step within each school, and they tested exactly as you just described, Patricia, how friendship and health lifestyles co-evolved together. So what they simultaneously tested was whether, was this peer influence So how changes in friend groups might affect students' health lifestyle class membership Mm -hmm. and also how I select my friends. So how changes in health lifestyles could affect adolescents' choices of friends. So if adolescent X and adolescent Y each have the same health lifestyle and then become friends over time or maintain their friendship versus um, if adolescent X and Y have different health lifestyles and dissolve their friendship. Two different ways to sort of look at how this happens over time. So what I also think is interesting, and we don't always run through sort of control variables because sometimes they add information and, you know, sometimes they don't. But here I think it's incredibly cool what they did. So they didn't just control for gender, age, race, ethnicity, GPA, parents' education, but they controlled for those things because they could drive health lifestyles, but they can also drive friend selection. I'm oh. more likely to choose a friend that's my similar age and maybe my similar uh, GPA um, because we are in some of the similar classes. But they also looked at other pieces that could drive these health lifestyles and friend selection, like if we're in similar extracurricular activities or being oh. in the same classes. If we're both in 4-H, they're going to control mm-hmm. for that similarity because we're going to be likely to be friends by function of we're near the horses versus... Yeah, cows, but it's not- fine. <laughs> cows. Oh, cows. Oh, it's not a horse thing? There is horses, but there's cows oh. and chickens and lambs. Oh. Um, and, lambs. And it's not... Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Know it just <laughs> such a specific category of age-related animal. I feel like, is it not? Are lambs not like baby sheep? Oh my gosh, aren't they? They are, right? <laughs> uh, they are, but you don't show sheep because, you know, like no, those no are idea. ewes. Like you only show lambs because they either become breeding or you eat them. <gasps> no. Nope. Or then they become wool. Like you don't... I... I have a lot of questions for this for after we're done recording. 4-H is a whole week's worth of conversation. Oh, well, and that's just the agriculture side of it. There's also the family consumer side, science side of it, oh, which is 
canning and quilting and food preservation and parenting. Fascinating. No idea. I learned so much uh, when I met PR. She kept repeating this phrase, 4-H. And I'm like, what is she referring to? Head, heart, hands, and health, baby. Before I would use Google oh, real quick, I'm like sitting with it. Like, maybe so it's not 4-H for, for horses, just a bunch of horses for horses. Head, the average heart, person hands, and health. It's amazing. Cooperative extension. Get at it. Contact your local county agent, man. Is it it. consistent with Waldorf? Like, like, oh my God. Uh, No. What do you mean consistent with Waldorf? What's, um, I don't know what that is. I have a lot of questions for after. All right. You guys just get at me. We're off the the rails. Um, You don't mean, you didn't say Waldorf, like the salad. That's what you said? No, not Waldorf no. or the Historia, but I'm, I'm speaking to Waldorf Academy. It's uh, it, Of course, um, it's consistent with Waldorf. It's consistent with everything. It's 4-H. It's learning about your environment and like- She'll write 4-H forever. I well, love it. Yes, I bleed were... green. I bleed green. <laughs> Shout out to all my 4-Hers. Oh my goodness. So if you were in this data set, Patricia, which I don't think that you were. I'm not. But- <laughs> If you had been, you could have been. That uh, shared 4-H identity, first of all, certainly could have driven some of your health behaviors. Honestly, it sounds like part of their mission was to drive your health behaviors, Uh but also they would have controlled for as much as they possibly could have. (laughs) They also controlled for if you were in some of the same classes and other mechanisms, so effects of those same contacts on health behaviors. So if you're friends because you both play football um, and football has an effect on exercise, they're Correct. controlling for that as well. But also this term I'd never heard, transitivity, Ooh. that you're more likely to become friends with your friend's friend. So that's how I met oh. Patricia because I became friends with Sesson and Sesson was friends with Patricia and I was more likely to become friends with Patricia that's because true. of transitivity. So that is not necessarily me selecting a friend. It's a friend because of network like yeah, proximity. Yeah, yeah. And they're controlling for that as well. Isn't that wild? That's I like, cool. What? Yeah. I mean, so many things. Brilliant. They of so many things. I just stopped taking notes and was like, oh my gosh, my brain exploded. What they found first in terms of health lifestyles, each school had three classes at each wave. And they okay. termed these mostly healthy, mostly unhealthy, mm-hmm. and discordant. So in the mostly healthy classes, you had high rates of non-smokers, non-drinkers, adolescents who had not had sex, kids who always wore a seatbelt. Mostly unhealthy, you had high rates of drug, alcohol, smoking use, Mm -hmm. not using a condom during last sexual activity, lower levels of physical activity, and then discordant groups. So these are these groups where you have both healthy and unhealthy behaviors, and these are different between the two schools. So in that white Midwestern school, high rates of physical activity and getting enough sleep and medical checkups, but also substantial substance use, including that chewing tobacco that you were curious about. (gasps) (laughs) I knew it textbook uh and then that diverse western school they had low rates of substance use physical activity getting enough sleep medical checkups they in general were sort of more passive this discordant group which i thought was the most interesting way to describe a group of people they just avoided behaviors like healthy or not they didn't do them it just were i don't know if they were how else you would describe them they were lazy they were um, having fun in other ways. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And they became more passive over time, they said. There was less drinking and less physical activity over time. We just get more. Oh, I'm worried that now they're depressed. Well, maybe that, I don't know. They were <laughs> yeah. withdrawing from, oh, oh, sorry. I should have interpreted that better. <laughs> they didn't control for depression, I don't think. But it would be a really interesting 
study also to look at mental health clustering and yeah. all of these variables are going to affect mental health as well yeah. it just wasn't part of what they looked at uh, aside from like you know maybe sleep um so overall students change lifestyle patterns quite a bit individual students so uh, say on average 47 percent and 66 percent in each of those schools but school level prevalence of each health behavior was fairly stable um, so especially in that white Midwestern school, the patterns of these health behaviors was stable. There's a slight shift from healthy to unhealthy in that Western school. There was more of a shift, but so these school contexts of health lifestyles are only changing a little while individual students can change quite a bit, which I think is really interesting and sort of speaks to their question about how, um, in our context, we sort of have the same available influences on our health behaviors over time even though we may sort in and out of how we engage in those health behaviors. What's available to us stays pretty stable. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. And then they looked at that network process piece. Yeah. Friends were more likely to share a health lifestyle. So okay. the odds of maintaining or forming a new friendship within the same health lifestyle class was almost three times greater than the odds of friendship between health lifestyle dissimilar adolescents mm. for that Midwestern school as one example. So adolescents are selecting health similar friends. Yeah. I'm more likely to make a friend that's in that most healthy group if I'm in the most healthy group between year one and year two. They also found that adolescents were more likely to adopt a lifestyle class <gasps> as the number of friends in that class increased. So for oh each additional gosh. friend in that other class, the odds yes. of then choosing that class increased by... 53% and 30% between those two schools. So peers influenced our health lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Now, their last step was to compare the two, the relative influence of whether I choose people who are like me or my friends drag me along. <laughs> Get over here. You this will do passive discorded group. <laughs> and when they compared the two, selecting similar friends was responsible for more of why friends had similar health lifestyles than that peer influence piece. And the comparison, I think the numbers are really important. 68% in the Western school versus 11% and oh. 55 versus 20% of the effects of why our friends have similar health in us. So it's more about um, selecting for people who are like us which is, I think, really interesting. It's, uh, both are important, but one is driving more of the effect that they found. Yeah. Um, and I do think it would be really also curious um, in terms of maybe mental health being one piece we've already talked about, but also looking at non-school context. Um, my brain just sort of really got excited about other ways you could explore these contextual effects on what we have uh, available to us in terms of what we might sort of um, choose on our influences on our health. I mean, neighborhood contexts, families mm -hmm. within neighborhoods, um, but also the impact of exposure. So as Sesson said earlier, um, what this maybe has looked like in the last few years where some kids have had a lot less exposure in some ways in person while doing non-traditional schooling, okay. during virtual schooling and oh. sort of social distancing and whether there's an impact in terms of contact with friends. Um, but in general, I think it's really interesting that these adolescents are actively making choices about who they spend time with and who they befriend based on, at least in part, their health behaviors, uh, which sort of made me wonder whether, you know, healthy begets healthy. If I'm somebody yeah. who's pursuing these healthy behaviors and I befriend that and that has then reciprocal influence on how I continue to behave, but also unhealthy could beget unhealthy. And so paying attention to... Yeah. Going down that road. Kids. Yeah. I think that this for me is particularly uh, 
nice as I'm looking forward, like ahead to how I'm going to parent teenagers. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so often we think of like, or the media or whoever portrays adolescence as like something that behaviors like drinking happens to yeah, happens or to smoking right. happens to them. They're these kind of passive things, but this kind of flips that for me and gives me some hope that, you know, they can go in the direction of healthy behaviors. They are more active in these decision makings. I mean, that also means they're more active in unhealthy behaviors as well. But maybe, and obviously this particular research doesn't bore this out, but maybe teaching healthy life behaviors in uh, elementary, early middle school might help forge that direction mm-hmm. of healthier behaviors. Mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. but it... Yeah, I like it from a, thinking about how I'm going to parent my children and those sure. behaviors. It does Establish give me hope. Yeah, lots of good habits before they get into this especially influential part of their lifespan, but these especially influential networks and environments. Yeah, yeah. I guess it also makes me think, like, just you know, adolescence is such an amazing. It's such a complicated. It's such an you know. It, there's a lot of I think. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a scary time. It's a scary time. You're deeply entrenched in this exploration of who you are and trying to make sense yeah. of like who you are in the context of like your, your networks too, right? Like when I think about, you know, the choices piece, like, and how um, empowered adolescents feel or don't feel at this age, it just mm. raises that question for me. I feel like so many adolescents don't feel like they have autonomy or necessarily like self-efficacy, right? Like this ability to yeah. really have an influence in their own life, right? It feels like so much of what they I experience is like, you know, I'm being told what to do, how to be, who I should be, and all of these things. And yet um, we don't always talk, I think, to our adolescents, right? Whether it's within education or parents about just how empowered they are, right? Mm-hmm. To help shape their future. Um, and their health choices, right? Things that have long-term implications in their life. And so I wonder if there's just like a narrative that we could be thinking about like adopting with youth earlier on, right? To really help empower them to feel like they have a say in where they end up, right? And they really do. Because, yeah, I don't know. As a parent, I also think like, gosh, I wonder how much I can step back and let my child who I really want to see happy and successful in life sort of sit in their own right sit in their own power and choice and like let them make those choices and see i don't know it just it raises the questions for me yeah and i think health behaviors is a really nice for 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 way for way foyer for a for a found it thank you um into that sitting in your own power because they are tangible behaviors that are easier to teach too potentially they could also and be some really of these involve like a lot of safety issues too. They've chosen really impactful health behaviors to be looking at that have strong effects on long-term health trajectories, but some of these are also safety issues. Seatbelt use is, yeah. feels like a non-negotiable, right? Yeah. My, right? Non-negotiables, so. But if this was done in the 90s, I mean, oh, you know how like they're just hot and loose and fast with seatbelts back then. So I don't know. <laughs> Well, that wasn't, wasn't a thing. I wasn't in high school when this was. No, I wasn't in high school when this would have been done yet. Right. Mid nineties. I don't, I would have been 
What well, year did like, you graduate from high school? Good question. I was just wondering that in my head. I was gonna. <laughs> <laughs> 2000, 2001. 2001. 2001. Yeah, but, I think yeah, so. I yeah. mean, you were yeah. in high school in the 90s. I was, but not 90. I think that isn't the first wave at health 94. I'd have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure it's 94. So please, I was in middle school. This has nothing to do with me. Ah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm extremely <laughs> adherent to seatbelt laws. <laughs> Fault? I, I'm in some uber nerdy, mostly healthy group that oh, it's hard for me to select friends. <laughs> oh, you look like you're very into seatbelts. Oh, we shall be friends. <laughs> I just oh my gosh. Um, I'm not really sure if that's the take home message the authors were intending, but you're right. You are nerdy. Well, you were going <laughs> to... You're going to pick on these 90s kids. They were my. I love the 90s. <laughs> my group, there. my peoples. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, friends, as we just discussed. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, as we discussed even earlier. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists, as we are about to discuss. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. And this part of the show, we use science, mind you, to determine if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email at us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook, or Meta. I'm sorry, I should rephrase that. Meta at attachpodcast or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever your favorite podcast app is or YouTube. Also, as a reminder, the best way to get other people to uh, listen, help us listen to the podcast is to force it upon them. So our recommendation this week is go into your local mall or eatery, whatever you love, and play the podcast out loud on speaker. We find that people really, really enjoy listening to a podcast that they weren't interested in um, if you play it out loud in a public space. Is that what you guys find as well? Oh, silence. Uh, Interesting. Uh, silence. Okay. I'm going to take that as a absolutely yes. So <laughs> I'm just trying to think about my shopping experiences and how quiet and serene I like things to be. Yeah. I'm not um, sure I've ever been in the vicinity of someone who has directly tried to influence me that way, nor have I tried it myself, but another homework assignment for me. It's good. Listen, you got to do what you got to do. I don't know what that buckle means. In, <laughs> literally, got to buckle in, drive to the store, and try it. Go to Target. I love that place. Uh, my middle child often says, can we go to Target today? Nope. Uh, not today, my guy. Um, nice try. <laughs> nice try. I know you wanted another toy. <laughs> and then I laugh evilly because I'm that mom. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Last episode, we read some of the worst mental health advice people had received. Today, 
we're going back to Dr. Marina Harris's Twitter to talk about some of the best advice people say that they have received. So after um, the what is bad mental health advice tweet blew up virally, of course, we're talking about, um, she also said, what is some good advice? So it was so hard for me to choose. There were so many lovely nuggets of advice. Uh, I pulled a few of them. There are many, many more. So go check out the tweet. We'll link it in the bio here. Um, But I'm curious what you guys think is the science behind some of these good advice um, for mental health tweets. Uh, So are you guys ready? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, the enthusiasm. Click. Here we go. Oh, yes. seatbelt on. Seatbelt. Uh, dip oh, in the mouth. Not living on no. the edge. Patricia. <laughs> Two, four, eight. <laughs> I think it never depends dip. on what state you live in. Some places are going to give you a big ticket. You might even end up in jail without your seatbelt. I don't oh know. They gosh. play it in Tennessee. Loose and fast. Loose and fast, man. Oh, seatbelt. Yeah. What is that? Yeah, California. I feel like we, we see a seatbelt and we're like, dang all what's that um it's not how that happens you guys that is a good thing i met you through a mutual friend because i don't know (laughs) (laughs) we would have never been otherwise never been friends okay texas i know how they do seatbelts up in that yeah i'm sure but there's no rules (laughs) no rules just right the state of you do you (laughs) yeah uh balls to the wall you do you texas Uh, (laughs) i'm not even sure anyone in texas would argue with that all right we're friends again i was born in texas i do these things anyway back to the good or bad advice and dr marina harris thank you again we uh, apologize for whatever that just was um or i apologize so uh up first here we go uh mine was that all emotions are valid that to heal, I need to feel emotions, that I don't need to use productivity to numb myself. What? Good advice. Talk to us about what you think. Woods? Damn. <laughs> I mean. Uh, Did that one just strike a chord to you? I mean, I know it's, it yeah. Me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, I felt like it had multiple layers all emotions are valid sure um i think it's unproductive to suggest that emotions aren't valid i think uh there is um in terms of like intervention approaches to help Mm -hmm. people who experience a lot of emotion dysregulation uh, part of what can be really helpful is to learn acceptance of emotions as they happen versus sort of fighting them especially um to contradict people's tendencies to numb out, right? To mm-hmm. check out of that emotion and try yeah. to operate solely in logic and uh, activity. Um, and also part of that acceptance piece is that uh, it can be helpful to um, teach and to learn around we are not our emotions mm-hmm. and that we can um, balance that emotions and respond to our feelings in lots of different ways. Um, that emotions are only one kind of information and they don't need to swallow us up whole. Uh, so that's what it makes me think of. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I would say good advice. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, yeah. it is good advice. I agree. It definitely is good advice. And what I heard you saying about like accepting emotions has flavors of a lot of mindfulness research to me as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Sassan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I support that idea a lot as well. I think what um, our tendency is, is to uh, push away the hard emotions, right? We want to embrace and be all about the good ones. But I think the reason we push away the hard ones is because it's really hard to sit with. So I think the idea of all emotions are valid. It's important because they are valid. They're your emotions, right? So they exist. But also, I think it also speaks to the idea that we should be in relationship to our emotions, right? Not just that they're valid, but there's a relationship we need to have with our emotions that allows us to experience them and really em- not embrace, but I would say just be able to sit with that. Like you would like a, a person, right. And be in conversation sometimes check in with your emotions, Yeah, you know, and definitely for me, when I'm working with clients, I talk a lot about how multiple emotions might be present at the same time and how those emotions also need to be in relationship with each other. So I like to externalize emotions so people can really understand that they're connected to them. But like you said, Sarah, it doesn't define who they are, but it's a part of them, right? So I practice from internal family systems perspective in a lot of my individual work. And so it is amazing to see people take what they've been trying to ignore, push away, minimize, and just to have some acceptance and actually honor those hard emotions because it serves a purpose or at least it did at some point. And now they have to find a way to make what is become maladaptive adaptive for them. So Mm. just knowing how to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing hard work to do sometimes, but really, Mm. really important. It's brave. It's brave work. And a lot of people are able to do it once they realize like, I don't have to feel shame for the feelings I have. Right. I Mm -hmm. just really be with them. Like, really, that's a thing. (laughs) And they won't consume me. It's a really, really wonderful thing to watch people find healthy ways to connect to themselves. Right. I love it. So up next, um, do what makes you feel better. Doesn't have to be better by much. A 1% gain is still a gain and can be worked on again tomorrow. I don't know what the context is around this, but this was some good mental health um, advice that she received thoughts. Yeah. So I have two thoughts when I hear that piece of advice, um, similar to my reaction to the first piece of advice that you had shared that, um, learning and practicing acceptance, first of all, takes a lot of work, um, and to not sort of actively fight it when we don't feel good and to sort of be able to, um, comfort ourselves or seek comfort from others and be able to sort of sit and sustain, negative emotion and be able to ride that out is hard work. Um, and also, um, something that sometimes can be helpful to learn that you may not be able to sort of shift your emotion in the moment. And so how can you sort of sustain it? Because it's not permanent. Emotions are temporary. Um, I think that do what makes you feel better is the only caveat, um, in terms of for some people in emotion dysregulation or when they're sort of struggling with their mental health, what makes them feel better in the short term to have a small Uh gain today, but not in the long term, can actually have long-term negative consequences that they will regret. Um, or that then leads to sort of, um, setbacks in their mental health or shame, et cetera, in terms of, you know, substance use, risky sexual activity, those sorts of things. So I think finding what makes you feel better that is also healthy for you can sometimes Mm -hmm. be really important work. That's a good point. Yeah. Again, we didn't necessarily know the context, but the context is important. So whatever that is, make sure that what makes you feel better is for both short-term and maybe long-term, um, uh, outcomes. Um, what do you think? 
you know, I don't know that I have much to add to that. I yeah. agree. I think that can be interpreted in many different ways, but as long as that, what makes you feel better is also something that you can live with long-term or that I think doesn't feel like it causes harm, you know, to yourself or others, you know, outside of yeah. that moment where you get that experience, that gain, I think that's important. So, yeah. Um, and I really like that piece, the 1% gain and giving yourself that grace, that change can happen very, very slowly over time. And there are ebbs and flows with change too. I also hear a lot of that in this um, bit of advice is just so important. And sometimes, and I'm talking to kind of myself here, we think that if we don't fix it immediately, um, then there's something inherently um, wrong. Um, so the lack of immediacy maybe can be really, really challenging, but giving yourself that space to understand that even a 1% gain um, is important and needs to be celebrated and we can just get back mm -hmm. at it tomorrow. Um, I like that. All right. So next that we can't force other people to fit into the story and quotes we want for our life. Sometimes we have to be flexible or let go of them if they are toxic. What do you think, Woods? Oof. Uh, so, yes. Um, our, we can. There was uh, someone who commented back on this. Let me add that piece, too, if that's okay. okay. Someone commented on that and said, I've gotten much more comfortable in my 40s with the idea that some people are transient. Maybe you learn something from them, maybe not, but some friendships just aren't for the long haul and that's okay. Um, so that was kind of like an add on to that first bit in terms of a story, which I think kind of helps um, clarify um, mm -hmm. that first bit of good mental health bit. Yeah, I mean, um, as we've talked about, I think even just in the last few episodes today included, our behavior can influence the behavior of our friends and our family and our partners. And we have powerful ability in our systems to shape each other. That's how relationships work. And also, I think to the first piece of advice that you had read, Patricia, we certainly don't have the ability to force people to shift, especially yeah. where they don't necessarily want to shift or just not a fit for them either, or they've dug in their heels or whatever sort of reason that looks like. Um, so I think uh, flexibility is super important and a really important factor for healthy relationships, especially when relationships are going through change or we're aging together or whatever that sort of looks like. And also yeah. um, ending relationships, especially I think the word you had used, Patricia, was toxic. Um, finding healthy ways to end relationships that are not healthy for us is absolutely an important part of our evolution and sustaining all relationships for the sake that they once were a relationship mm. is not a healthy definition yeah. of protecting our mental health or engaging in relationships at all. Yeah, but it's mm. really hard to do. Ooh, that's a hard sure. one for me, but it's good. Uh, Sesson, what do you think? You know, when I read that, when I hear that statement, um, I think about the idea that, you know, we have more than one story. Um, I think our life consists of many stories, right? And I think it just depends on how you want to look at it, but you have, if you look at your life as a story, I think there's multiple chapters in it, right? So there might be some people who really fit well in one chapter of your life and then don't seem to have a place in the preceding chapters, right? And so I think when we think about the idea of 
all characters have to be in all chapters. That's a hard thing to imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're going to have people who are in some chapters and not in others. And if you look at your life as a series of chapters, right, then I think there's more flexibility there in the idea that our life is more than one thing. It's not this dominant story of this is who we are. And so I think it makes me think that like where if there's somebody who was in the first six chapters of your life doesn't make sense in chapter eight or nine, you know, it's about finding a way to think about like the fact that there's flexibility in our story and our story evolves and it grows. And um, that's what I hope we can sort of think about is like our life being more than one story. And it's hard when Lovely. we're really stuck in a particular moment to see that but lovely i love it last but certainly not least someone else's poor planning is not your crisis <laughs> uh hard eye roll from sarah <laughs> i mean this is what i feel like i hear people say a lot and it just feels so aspirational like i don't know that there's science to support i don't know how i, I can bring so. science to sort of bear on my reaction to that and also <laughs> is it not my crisis i feel like it so yeah. often ends up in my lack of crisis like um so i mean i guess in terms of setting boundaries around not picking up Others were, I include that a lot in my teaching um, in terms of how to set boundaries around um, patients bringing lots of um, anxiety or systems asking more from you than you have the ability to give and a counter burnout for healthcare professionals um, learning boundaries around where you need to say no, not because you don't want to do it or because you don't want to be helpful, but because you can't, and it's not necessarily your responsibility. And just because something's on the ground, we don't need to pick it up and make the work mm -hmm. our own. Setting boundaries around the labor that we do is really key to our mental health. So I apologize. I, <laughs> Patricia, I'm not sure that I have like science to support that, but no. my eye rolls about my personal reaction about, is it not? <laughs> well, but. I think this is oftentimes much easier said than done. Like yeah. is what it's especially for people like the three of us in kind of a care field where that's kind of what we do for a living. Um, I used to, I don't really do it anymore. Um, maybe I was better at like saying, nope, your crisis. Oh, that's awful to say, but anyway, um, <laughs> But uh, it's so much easier said than done, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, Sesson, what are you thinking? This one is a hard one because I live this experience sometimes where, you know, I end up sort of picking up someone else's workload or um, the lack of workload produced. Um, but I think it just reminds me that, you know, when it comes to things that ultimately affect our well-being or our performance or things that we're tethered together on, right? Like, you know, some people can't pick who they work with on things, right? It's easier said than done, like you said, to say, like, your poor planning does not become my crisis. That's a harder thing to, because of course it does. It reflects on me. I suffer for mm -hmm. it, whatever it might be. But so I don't know that's the kind of advice I would give. I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's more about how do we be in conversation with people so that these things aren't patterns of behaviors. If we're speaking yeah. to it being the case with the same that's sort important. of person or group of people. Yep. Yeah. That's important. Nice. Yeah. There's more nuance in that. So right. I think that's where I'll stop with that. I would love for it not to be my crisis, but the reality is when we live in an outcome-based society, um, there are certain things you're expected to perform and do and deadlines. And so um, you end up having to do the work sometimes and it yeah. feels like a crisis, right? Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're doing three people's uh, work because the other 
people aren't doing anything. A hundred percent. I also <laughs> not uh, speaking about this group. I was going right? to say present company. One, two, three. No, ex- present company excluded. <laughs> Absolutely um, not you guys at all. Um, but I think an easier way to apply this, um, and this is me thinking in my own life, is I have this um, intense obsession with being on time. Twilight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, t- Twilight too. Also, this is why I have to do deep dive into obsession things to get out of my own head because my anxiety gets too high sometimes. But anyway, um, uh, the amount of anxiety I have when I realize that we're running one minute late is so high like it's ridiculous it's like unnecessary it's i know logically that it doesn't make sense and it also sometimes uh transmits to other people when friends are running late let's say we're going to a movie um and friends are running late to that movie my anxiety skyrockets i was there 10 minutes early just so i could make sure not to be late so i can control my own anxiety so one thing i have had to realize is their poor planning of not leaving Uh, 10 minutes early and then they hit all the red lights is not my crisis. I can go into the movie and say, I saved you a seat. You can come in. I'm going to go into it on time. So there are little tiny things Uh um, that this applies to for me that have helped me a lot. The workload, the work stuff, I agree is much, much harder, Mm -hmm. but the everyday kind of little tiny things, um, which don't feel very tiny in the moment. In the moment, yeah. Um, is easier for me to apply this too. And it also helps my well-being. Nice. It helps me just like go on. And it also helps me not be mad at that person too. Sure. Uh, sure. Because it that's fine. You can be late, like hundred percent. For my own well-being, I have to be on time. And also uh this stems from my uh, lovely mother who was a single mother for a, a really long time perpetually being late to pick me up. I know that that's where it stems from, but I have also (laughs) um, passed this down to my child. Like my oldest will like start, look, what time is it? Are we, oh my gosh, are we going to be there on time? I'm like, oh no. (laughs) I have never once been late to pick up this child, but she's perpetually anxious about me being late now. And I'm like, so in that situation, your excellent planning became her crisis. Is that right? (laughs) It's gone back on itself. It's like loop back on bent over. And now I am traumatizing my child. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Is it? I don't know. I loop back around and now I think it's my advice. So (laughs) unclear Uh, time will tell. Um, but listen, if she ends up in therapy because of like the fears of being late, I think they're worse things. So much worse. Yeah. yeah. My mom I'm was okay on time that. all the time. The therapist is going to be like, that's it. Just really into four like, H. It was too much. <laughs> she made me show all of these sheep, all these, these time. lambs, <laughs> all these lambs. And then we killed them and ate their food. Okay. All it. right. We're having so lamb for dinner tonight. Isn't that exciting? We raised them. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow. It's the circle of life to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs>